Thank you. I'd like to call to order the City Council meeting of June 20th, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. Um, we'll go to the roll call. Councilmember Black will not be able to join us for this study session, but he will be joining us virtually for a regular meeting. Um, can I get a motion to excuse Councilmember Black from the this study session. So moved. <laughs> moved by Councilmember Falco, <laughs> second by Councilmember Curtis. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. Aye. Motion carries. Okay, our study session tonight is on two topics. Roll call. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so close to all these. <laughs> Councilmember Nixon. Here. Councilmember Curtis. Here. Councilmember Falcone. Here. Councilmember Pascal. Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Here. Mayor Steve. Here. Now, to do, shall we get introductions or how do you want to do this? Sure. I mean, I think we're going to do a quick kickoff. Great. So, we're going to do a quick opening and then we can do the Right. And then we'll have everybody yeah. tell us who they are. Okay. Okay. So, just very quickly for everybody. So, as you know, we have two study sessions elements tonight. So this is 45 minutes and then we have a second one, which is 45 minutes. We have a, a counselor approach to have a senior counselor here tonight. We have several who are going to make actual presentations to you and most of the rest have attended as well. And we welcome your thoughts and ability to chime in. I'm going to go ahead and turn over to Betsy Maxwell to say some introductory remarks. As you know, she's our awesome program coordinator at the North Kirkland Community Center. Remember, we, we can, we we're being heard by the by the speakers in the ceiling, but we do have to keep our voices a little higher because it doesn't magnify us. Okay. Well, thank you. We just want to thank you for the opportunity to come and um, talk to you about some of the senior um, issues that we are seeing the community face right now. And so I'm going to actually start off by having Jack, if you would like to introduce yourself and you can start. Okay. Well, I'm Jack Stout. I'm the chair of Year's senior console. I've been my sixth year on the console, and they're going to boot me off. I'll come back as a volunteer or flower on the wall. In any case, I've got with me who will speak tonight about the past and the current and the future of the senior console. And we have Kathy, person that almost all of you know, she's been with us for a very long time, and Karen. And Kathy's our advocacy chair, Karen is our transportation chair. And I guess you want to introduce the rest of the folks then? Yeah. The other senior members, if you want to ask senior council members. I'm Steve Lewis. I'm a member of the senior council. Dave Weger. Bob Warren, senior council member. Susan Harris, either. Jim Hall. Joan Fadon. Oh, Carol Bryan. Ingrid Martin. Terry Steele-Keller. Terry J. Kelly. Penny Kahn. Barbara Loomis. They're here for the next topic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome everybody. Go ahead with the presentation. Sure. Um, first of all, I want to say that I've been in the city for three decades or more, and this city is the most inclusive city I have ever had the chance pleasure to live in. Uh, it's a welcoming place. I'm proud to live here and volunteer here. I'm proud to be able to attend things like Tuesday Pizza Celebration, all the many other things. The Senior Council is over 20 years old. We were formed 
2002. Discount a few years for COVID, I suppose, but we've been active through those periods of time with many different volunteers contributing. Um, <clears throat> this year, we welcomed four new members, and Kathy returned again after Linda Bollinger. That is, we have 18 members, 15 of them are here today. They commit to being part of the city and part of their role as champions for advocates for the city. Uh, we learned a few things from COVID, as I'm sure all of us in the room have. And so I'll talk a little bit about some of the things that we envision for the future and, and look to for the future um, that are different than perhaps our past. Examples include uh, reclaiming a place uh, at the city for the city website, and we had a kind of a miniature uh, place there. But uh, thanks to inventing, in fact, we now have our, our picture there and make it worth next, including what our work plan is. Um, we're rethinking the 10 year old BEMA volunteer organization and function thanks to Dave Wagner, who created it over 10 years ago. You know, behind you see the new banner for the Viva Volunteer Roadshow. Rather than having folks have to come to the Peter Kern Center, we're going to go out to the people. We're going to be visiting the farmers markets and Oktoberfest and other events around the city and taking that message that seniors are included in our town. They're welcome to bring their gifts and volunteer and share their capabilities with lots of different organizations, including the city's um, we're refocusing our community education forum. Started with property taxes created by Susan over there. And now Ingrid has come up with a list of new opportunities for us that list them all the way out next year. Talking about some other things for seniors and hosting those at the Pursa. Uh, we're re-energized by the senior auction that came back after many years. And that senior art show this year had 170 pieces of art drawn by 75 individuals. But the history is that goes back uh, a number of years for Harold And it's been as high as 200 pieces of art and really a ribbon signified the community's judgments of the best. And um, the creativity of our community is on display there, like Nowhere else in town. Everything you can imagine has been created by hands, mind, and eyes, and heart. So it's open for two more days. Get a chance to go over there. Um, Penny Cuss is the person who puts that on. And Penny is one of our most active and aggressive leaders of committee. She actually has two of our programs the Resource Guide and the Art Show. The Resource Guide has been around for a couple of years. COVID made it a little difficult for us, but it also presented a challenge. So many businesses that were in that former drive home that's out there in the streets now are not in the new one. It took hundreds of hours to put by her We'll call on each one of those entities, validating their systems, updating their, their work. That's funded by both the city, coordinated by Betsy, and also by government. But we often see, as we did just in the recent farmer's market, folks coming up to us and saying, oh, yes, I need one of those. It's a place I can go. It's something 
even if the lights are out by an So it's a very valuable source if you want to think of it. Some thoughts about inclusion of seniors in city council and city activities and parks and so on. Um, we're not part of some of the parks and rec programs that we can think different than the parks and rec in the Peter Park Center, but we're peripheral to it and but our function and our programs are about activism and advocating for seniors, both politically and in the city. Um, Kathy will talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. Um, but I also know that we recognize that sometimes we're left out of things in the city. This came to mind recently. I attended two events this past week, and in both, I met you very well-skilled videographer. He was at both of those events, but he wasn't at the art show. And I asked myself, why is that? But we need to do a better job of making sure the city knows where we're at so that we can be a part of the city together. So that's one of our things on it. Um, bigger issues we're working on are interaction between the Kirkland Senior Council and the Human Resources Commission. That was created some time ago and expanded beyond its uh, grant-making role. But in recent meetings with its director, I discovered that that role is so significant and big, it takes up so much time, that they haven't much time to think about what the senior council is doing, and we haven't had much conversation. But a few days from now, we're going to have a meeting with them as well, as we're having today. We're going to try and get a better collaboration with them to understand how well missions, which are stated the same, and the city's plans, which support seniors over 55 or 55. Thank you, no. I'm So that's another one of our action plans, to make those two really significant organizations that have the same goals and objectives with different sets of resources come together and work together and do more senior citizens. So um, I think I'm going to turn it over to Kathy and she talk about advocacy, advocacy. <laughs> legislative advocacy. Well, as you all know, um, we partner with the Bellevue Network on Aging for all our advocacy efforts, and we um, <clears throat> establish uh, a state agenda, federal agenda, and working on a local agenda as a general rule. And <clears throat> we get our updates and things from city government or state government from an organization called the Washington State Senior Citizens Lobby. And we thank the city for always funding us to go to this, except it's been Zoom the last couple of years, but maybe this year they'll get back to doing a uh, in prison. So we trail down to Tacoma and listen to different state department heads, their needs and wants and so on. Is it a, as it a, appears to need in the senior community. So that's where we get our ideas usually for our uh, uh, state agenda. <clears throat> and this year we kind of stumbled onto some interesting uh, things in the fact that there's a Medicaid, Medicare dual policy membership in the state and it comprises quite a few people. The state funds it for $3.6 million matched federally. 
But Medicare always says the state does such a good job in their long-term care efforts that they decided to pay back uh, into our general fund dollars when they find good reasons to do so. And so this year, I believe that our payback for Medicare is like $17 billion. Million. So kudos to our long-term care um, facilities and our, and our foresight. And um, <clears throat> we have met with uh, Zooming, of course, the last couple of years with legislators. We will probably return to in-person if we can. But um, I believe we've been doing this long enough now so that we're kind of credible. The first district, the 45th, the 41st, and the 48th are our um, geographical places and um, we're usually well received and we educate them and they educate us often kind of a, a roundabout there and we appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> but locally we had decided this year to um, emphasize missing middle housing which is the buzzword all over. Very frustrating. Um, we took a bus tour with Arch early on in the year, and we uh, toured the affordable and low-income housing in Bellevue. And that was very educational and interesting. And we actually ran out of bus time because we would offload the bus and, and stand in the yard, and the people who were staffing all of these would come and, and tell us their parameters and so on. It was very interesting and a good uh, look at the low income and supported housing that goes on through ARCH. <clears throat> uh, so <clears throat> we um, also had um, broke out into a smaller committee to try and identify work plans for housing and that sort of thing. Um, current in Kirkland here, uh, some of us are involved in visiting all the new or remodeling um, senior residences, and it's been kind of an eye-opener in terms of pricing. Uh, the only thing that we can come up to is the fact that they know seniors are selling their homes and moving into senior housing, and they've got this ton of money in the Prices are certainly way up there. And I don't know what affordable means to the senior community, really, but um, the housing prices are, are quite unique. And unfortunately, the city has lost two um, <clears throat> qualified older Medicaid low-income uh, long-term care. <clears throat> One was Brookdale. And one was the uh, German retirement house there at Juanita. And what we have envisioned um, is maybe them returning to uh, low income, but all the advertising is unique, boutique, and luxury. So I talked to the lady of marketing the Park Shore one uh, quite a while ago, and I said that. I had understood that Park Shore was a, re, a re, uh, 
a community resource where you can go from independent to assisted to nursing home care. And that's a, a buy-in program. So I asked her how they were going to run this park shore up here. And she said, oh, it will just be independent living. And I said, but you have to have your assistant in your uh, nursing home level. Well, she said, we've been talking about that. And maybe we'll run a boat from your dock to our dock, which is Park Shore in, in Seattle is just on the other side of the 520 bridge there on the water. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, we're thinking about it. But in reality, um, I don't know how that would work, but uh, they do are under a, a huge umbrella and they do have other properties on the east side that they probably will have to uh, have an agreement with if they're gonna continue to be a continuing retirement. Not know where that will end up. Kathy, is Park Shore going in where Brookdale was? No, Park Shore is going in where the German house is. It's going to be 51 or 52 independent units. And they're advertised as luxury. Yeah. And the um, Brookdale place is being remodeled and refinished. And we will visit that when they get more open. But they are um, listed as boutique assisted listing, uh, living right now. So I don't know where that's going with that either. Um, <clears throat> but um, Peters Creek on the 85th corridor into Redmond used to also service a lower income Medicaid. I think they've quit doing that too. So we've really lost on the east side, east side a lot, a lot of long-term care beds for the nursing home clientele. And when people um, cash out of their independent living and they run out of money, they can't stay, they make a move which is really an insult because now you have to leave your community and your health and your friends and your church, whatever. I think it is an issue. I think it's something um, Kirkland should be looking at. I don't know how to solve that problem, but um, we don't no longer have any uh, usable long-term care situations here for the average person who may be running out of money. <clears throat> um, so we're going to continue here in Kirkland to look at um, open houses. And Barb and I had the opportunity to go into a new apartment building in uh, up at Totem Lake. And I forget the name of it. Sorry. See your moment. No. It's um, just an apartment that any age can, can rent. So it was a lovely place and very modern, very sleek several amenities and so forth. But the clicker for the senior community would be every single day they change the code to get into the building or to get into the parking lot. So if you miss the app on your phone, you're kind of locked out of your space. So we didn't think that was real handy procedures. But that's how they run that particular building. So um, also, uh, I have, um, in my particular neighborhood, uh, found this uh, bunch of land, and I contact the planning department saying, I thought 
this would really be great for duplexes and triplexes and cottages and so forth. So planning said, okay, we'll ask the owner, the builder, the contractor. So they did. And it, it took them a while, but the, the answer came coming back was, well, we know we can sell nine luxury homes, but we don't know if we can sell any duplexes. So we're going to proceed with our nine luxury homes, which they're still sitting there. So I don't know what that's going on about. And in the space of a few months, um, a, a street with 21, what I call middle-class affordable housing, has been replaced. Um, nine, eight of the houses are now 4,000 square foot mansions, leering down on 1,200 to 1,500 ramblers. And of course, there's going to be nothing going on there but higher prices for those people who are still living in their affordable housing. So that's the situation. The city says that when you build something new, it happens. Well, I don't see that happening at all on North Rose Hill or South Rose Hill, which is where I hang out most of the time. So I don't know if we should just erase that language from the from the, from the zones or the codes or whatever they are, because it's not happening. <clears throat> so we're going to continue to look um, at what's coming and going. It's a kind of a frustrating thing, but I feel like the more educated we become on the whole situation, the more confusing it gets because it is so multi-layered and multi-factored. But one idea I had, I, I wondered if the city could actually become more involved in the actual planning of neighborhoods so that maybe some arm twisting could go on between builders and contractors if they were dealing with everybody on who makes a lot of decisions. And I know planning is always involved in that. So there are so many um, big complexes going in. And another thing that I think the city should actually insist on is air conditioning. Our climates are, are not... Um, very regular anymore. And these uh, large seven and eight story buildings really need to have air conditioning and that sort of thing. There's not anybody that I can figure out on the uh, planning or contracting side that is doing anything about universal design, which allows people to age in place. Arch seemed to say a few years ago that where you need to start for universal design is with the architects who are designing houses and, and uh, multi-family places to maybe have it. It's really quite reasonably priced to put in as you're building new homes, but it's kind of expensive to do it as an afterthought. So I think possibly there should, could be more going on in terms of um, twisting arms architecturally maybe in the city for that reason. But anyhow, we're going to continue to motor on. Uh, everybody's wringing their hands about missing middle. So we found um, this plan that comes out of Berkeley, California, called Opticos, 
and it's run by husband-wife team, the Parallax. And they um, have so much to say about the missing middle, um, how to add housing that's community-oriented and not high-rise. They just slide these things in, and they have multiple excellent pictures of how you actually add housing into neighborhoods that fit. And um, so we, I sent it up to uh, planning. Allison's like thinking maybe they could use some of those ideas in the 405 design process. And um, I asked if they were familiar with it. And Allison had then started to look at it and did uh, go all the way through. And she assumed that uh, Mr. Weinstein had it was familiar with it, but it really is a good way to add housing uh, there. And they hire out there all over the United States with samples. They had a, a picture of this huge mansion room, which was being built in a place where there were mansions, but it contained five separate households. So this is the kind of thing I think Kirkland needs to be looking at. That's it. But it's not <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, as you know, uh, this legislative system session, we spent a whole lot of time working on legislation that would create more housing. Yes. What we didn't do or unable to do was to focus on affordability and focus on seniors. <coughs> uh, I think that the legislature is ripe. That discussion. I think in talking with legislators um, this session, that there is a, a sense of regret about some of the legislation that went through without right. um, affordability right. being pushed into packages. So I think next year we're more than interested. I will agree to the legislative work group chair, okay. Ms. Curtis, um, to work with you sharing a message about this because I think it's going to be a very important element of next year's session. You know, the difficulty, thank you for that, that would really be very, very nice. Um, but the difficult thing is deciding what is affordable for seniors. Mm -hmm. We know. So, thank you. Kelly. Yeah, thank you, Madam Mayor. I was going to say the same thing because it's, it's really valuable to hear you talk about your needs and missing middle housing. And that missing middle housing isn't something that's done to neighborhoods. It's something that's inclusive housing for neighborhoods so people could age in place. And um, as chair, I'm sitting here listening to you going, we need to hear this voice. We need to recruit your voice when we speak to our legislators. You lean back. You don't like that <laughs> idea? <laughs> well, I'm kind of all these It's helpful that they hear from the people that have the need on why this is important. Okay. So thank you. That was very interesting. Thank, thank you. you. Go ahead. Kathy, one question and a couple of comments. Okay. You mentioned some of the loss of the Medicare available housing and the assisted living. Is there a resource that you used other than being aware of these transitions that are happening in Kirkland that says where these units are around the city, around the region, so we can monitor and bring up a really interesting, a really important point that we haven't focused on yet, and I think that we need to. 
uh, ES, actually our resource guide has things on housing, not okay. specifically long-term care, but you can go on the DSHS site and roll up any of them on the east side or anywhere in the state, and they will tell you accept Medicaid or not or all of that. So it's all a public record. Um, secondly, a couple of comments. You mentioned um, requirement for air conditioning and, and universal design. Um, I have the privilege of sitting on the state building code council that sets uh, residential building standards for the state and sets commercial building standards that uh, for cities that don't adopt their own. Um, one of the things that I'll, I'll note that we did there is we're requiring uh, the heat pumps, which actually run both ways. They provide heat and cooling. So when you hear heat pump uh, in a particular building, it means you're also getting air conditioning with that. Does so that I, include the, the multi-family? It does. Okay. It does. I don't know about universal design. I need to check to see where we are in those, those kind of standards. You bring up a good point. Um, and then finally, the, I'm glad you brought up the Octopus book. It is certainly making the rounds around elected officials. We've seen it in a number of uh, presentations by the realtors and others. And you're right, this, this uh, birthday couple really did literally write the book. On yes, it looks very well. It's well done. We're, we're aware of it, and several of us have copies. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. There's one thing that I want to add to what Kathy was talking about is I went on a tour of Morningstar and it was the uh, grand tour for senior living. And we went into one of the apartments and there was no universal design. There was no accommodations for any seniors with any disabilities. And someone had brought up, well, what's the price for this one bedroom apartment that doesn't have, she didn't say that has not universal design, but she said, what is the price? And the lady who uh, had the tour said, oh, it's a wonderful price. We're having a special today, only $3,500 a month. And no senior that I know is able to afford something like that. Uh, the bulk of, uh, of, of the folks that I know that are seniors, we've lived in our homes for at least 20 years. We bought in before the big hype. And if we sell our homes, we'll literally be giving all the money that we got from our homes to be able to pay for rent. And then what happens? So that's just something that I wanted to bring up. Uh, now we get into transportation, and we really need your help. Um, I, I gave everybody a handout of different options that I was able to find for transportation for seniors. Uh, one thing that I just wanted to start with is, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but uh, when I go and drive in the confines of Kirkland during the day, more likely than not, there will be a senior driving behind me, and when we're at a stoplight, they're within inches of my trunk. And what that means to me is that there are a bunch of seniors that shouldn't be driving Visual <laughs> 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 uh, problems that they are not admitting to, or hearing problems, they're having depth perception problems, other problems that make it 
uh, a little bit difficult for me to feel very comfortable driving on the road these days. And I don't go on the highway anymore because I'm really afraid of all the people that are going 90 miles an hour in a 60 mile an hour zone. And the seniors are making me even more uncomfortable because they're the ones that are going 20 miles an hour and then literally almost ending up in my trunk. So uh, the, the, the um, options that I really wanted to talk with you about today are just a couple of them. One is called, uh, they're both uh, offered through an organization called Sound Generations. I've given you phone numbers for each of these options so that you guys on your own can get more research on them. <laughs> Sound Generations has provided um, a service called Rides and Smiles. It started at the beginning of January. And the good part about Rides and Smiles is that it's one of the very few options that seniors have to be able to get a ride between Kirkland, Redmond, and Dillby. There are other options that uh, only provide rides within uh, the confines of Kirkland and North, which is the one that Betsy deals with with the North Shore Senior Center. Their territory is uh, Kenmore, Bothell, Windville, and, and the bulk of Kirkland. But they don't go down to Bellevue. And there are, including me, people that need to get to a doctor in Bellevue or the dentist or other grocery stores or what have you. And so the only two that I have found are Rides and Smiles and the volunteer transportation program through Sound Generations. On top of that, we have a problem because all of these choices, with the exception of volunteer transportation, do not transport seniors that have to have an outpatient surgery, such as cataract surgery or a colonoscopy, but volunteer transportation through Sound Generations will offer a round trip ride to seniors as long as they have a buddy going with them in the car and coming home in the car. It's a, it's a liability issue. Sure. And so uh, the five shuttle that's in Seattle does not come into the east side. Rides and Smiles comes into the east side for Bellevue, Kirkland, and Redmond. Uh, the, other pro the other programs that I have described here basically cover folks who are disabled. Metro uh, access is for disabled people only. And you have to apply for the program. You have to get an okay from the group. You have to get a doctor to sign off on that literally have to fail their physical test in order to be able to get natural access. So uh, one thing I do want to point out is with all of these programs that Sound Generations offers, it's on a donation basis. It's really good for because they will be able to pay what they can afford and nobody's going to be turned away. So there's another thing that we've been thinking about, actually, Jack and myself. And we have been discussing the possibility of having a Kirkland shuttle system, where we would have a shuttle going throughout the whole of Kirkland that a senior can walk maybe a block or two, get on a shuttle, go around through the whole of Kirkland to wherever their shopping center is, 
your doctor is, your chiropractor is, the dentist is, they get off, and then there'll be a series of shuttles that go around during the day, maybe three times or four times during the day to make a loop, to pick up that person wherever they are, and bring them back home again. I think the more seniors we get off the road that shouldn't be there, the better off our whole life. <laughs> and they need help. We need you guys so much. And it's such a wonderful group. So appreciate all of you. And and I know that you can help us. Somehow you can help us thinking about with a shuttle program, maybe we could get grants to help us. Maybe through the, the vendors on the route. Maybe we could get help uh, through grants from maybe the vendors could ship in a little bit. Maybe we could get grants through the state of Washington. Maybe we could get federal money. But I don't know. Uh, we, we just need help to be able to set up some sort of program that will be consistent and long-lasting for seniors. So, because we're all going to be there at some point. We're all going to need help. None of us are going to be driving our cars forever. And, and like I said, some really shouldn't be with that anymore anyway. And so anything that you can do to help us. Uh, if you have questions, please reach out. Uh, and all the phone numbers that you need are here. And these are the only programs that are available to help seniors with rising. That's what I have to say. Well, that's frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Not that far away from not driving my car anymore. So, <laughs> yeah, but even that shell is looking pretty good. <laughs> she really works here, so watch out for it. Yeah. <laughs> I attended the two transportation focus groups that the city held, and for the most part, there were people there in not seniors. Steve was there with me. And there were basically younger people, I would say, maybe. 40-ish, maybe <laughs> going on 50. Yes, I know. <laughs> and uh, I brought up the subject that um, in, in the midst of them talking about we need more bicycle paths and we need more bicycles, I'm thinking, well, gee whiz, we're not going to be able to be riding bicycles. We're going to need a little bit more help than that. And uh, I had suggested uh, a shuttle idea. To which um, somebody in the group said, Oh, you guys will be able to do this bicycle thing. I said, Oh, no, we won't. He said, Well, how about scooters? I said, Well, I'm really sorry, but nobody that I know that's a senior is going to ride a scooter down Market Street to go to shopping. And she said, <laughs> And so they proposed, Well, what about a, a three wheel scooter? Seniors can do that. To which I just had to because I thought that was the most idiotic thing. <laughs> We just need and and you know and valid uh, things for you know it, it's going to rain here, it's going to snow here, and we can't have a senior on a three-wheeled scooter going dark Market Street when it's snowing. It just seems <laughs> absolutely insane. So anyway, we just need help, and and, and so I'm turning to you guys. We're all turning to you guys. Okay, let me start with Kelly. Thank you, and thank you for showing up for that transportation meeting. Is really important to hear more voices. Um, I'm curious about the loop because I heard two different things. Are you imagining that it's a, a set pattern? So 
it will go to the same places each time because you've also said it would pick up and drop the fish home. Okay. I think the simplest way to fish should community centers mm -hmm. get two major shoppers. If you just look at those four points at the start, mm -hmm. pick up people who live in a dense neighborhood like Fifth and downtown and take them. Okay, that's yeah, because the because we, we can start that. Yeah. Okay. You know, and then we can expand. If things go really well at the beginning when you start the program, then we can expand it to downtown Colton. We can go all the way down, or we can go all the way up to where it be. we can order with money. And, and so we have to start someplace. And maybe Microsoft isn't going to all of their bus. We can move on to the back of what we I was even thinking about school buses. School buses don't mind the summer. Maybe we do some of those during the summer. We <laughs> make work in here. Yeah. I know for you. Good ideas. John. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for your uh, your summary here. A lot of good information. Uh, I was just going to respond to a couple of things that you said. One was around the driver's license. Is, um, I, I believe the Washington Traffic Safety Commission has been working on that. That was like a bill. Um, I don't think it's gotten uh, as much support as you might hope for across the state, but um, that's something to kind of monitor and check on. I know, um, but I have I have seen that uh, proposed several years uh, to where you have to renew your driver's license. Um, the other thing is I I'd be curious where you got some of this information. There is the find findaride.org uh, website that PSRC uh, Puget Regional Council. Uh, has and that was built as part of the coordinated mobility plan. That's really a plan to provide transit to those that um, have uh, mobility limitations, right? That, that seniors, people aging, but it's also those um, that can't get around um, by regular bus or uh, by car. And that's a great plan to check out because I think there's actually some more. Um, That'd be great. Uh, I did. I've never heard of. That. Yeah, yeah. You can just do ride. Uh, it's uh, find the and and it's actually by kind of area of the county, and then it will come up with all the different um, available types of transportation. Some that are public, some that are you know just for seniors or those going to uh, healthcare facilities. Um, and then the other thing that uh, I was reading you. One of the things that we've been tracking quite heavily is the Metro Flex program in Juanita um, on-demand transit service that's meant to <clears throat> service those areas where you don't have fixed route, fixed route buses, but and you don't have a car, you don't want to use a car, or you can't use a bike or walk or whatever, to connect to transit um, in the Juanita area. That's how it was set up, but it also connects to the total at the bottom, you said that this program is a non-starter for Kirkland. I was, I think you meant for all of Kirkland. It's just for Juanita, yeah. and it's not meant for the rest of the city. It's not the rest of the city, but it could be something really cool. And that alternative service is provided by King County Metro. And that's something that we're tracking quite closely. But you know, we've not seen the usages as much as we want. And it, I, I truly believe it's because people know that it's there. Because anyone can use it. And it's an app, and it's just like Uber, but it's provided publicly. It costs less. Um, it just might not be as responsive as one would expect. That 
a lift or an Uber would be, but still it's there for those that, that need it. So we, we're, we're really interested in that. I wanna see I want to see that succeed because I can see that being used in other areas. Was Metroflex also limited to disabled folks? Or was it- No, no, it's open to all, to okay. anyone. Yeah, you have the Metro Access that's for uh, those that are mobility impaired. So they have that in addition to If somehow it could be extended into Bellevue and Redmond, that would be something. It's meant to it's meant to build off and support the existing transit service to get to get to the buses and the other pieces because it's an interconnected system. But anyways, that's yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there, as you can see, just by your research. And there's also um, a program that that is in the works, but it hasn't been tested yet. Called one one call one click, and that is going to be a service where you could just call into that number, and they like what you just said. It will research all of the options for you to be able to get you a ride, yeah. and that's going to be tested in the fall. Uh, Toby. Oh, we're out, we're out of time, so I'll try to be quick. Um, I think John is being very measured in his remarks and saying that the driver's license restrictions that for uh, uh, the older you get um, has had soft support. I would say it's had fierce opposition uh, based, <laughs> on, based on when I was in the legislature uh, and it was proposed that, for example, at the age of 75, you would have to to, to retake a test. Or, and, and they also um, proposed that um, relatives could make anonymous tips that somebody ought to be retested, those kind of thing. And uh, the, the state level senior lobby just came completely unglued, right? So I, I think if this is an issue that you wanna promote, you'll need to work with the senior lobbyists at the state level to get them on board, because otherwise it's dead on arrival whenever it gets submitted, <laughs> right? And then the other thing I wanted to mention is I really appreciate you bringing up the idea of the, the shuttles. As years ago, um, I brought up this idea, and um, my, my idea was a little bit more comprehensive. I wanted to see like a neighborhood circulator shuttle in each neighborhood. So like I live in Kingsgate. I'd love to see a shuttle that just went around uh, Kingsgate, so it would be fairly frequent because the scope is kind of low, but it would connect you to the nearest transit center, it would connect you to the nearest shopping center, the library, those kind of things. And um, and it's not just for seniors or anybody who really wants to either is transit dependent or wants to make the choice uh, to not have a car. Um, uh, and then it, this came up again when we started talking about the aquatic center and how underserved the 70th Street corridor is right now. So I, I would support, maybe it has to be part of the comprehensive plan process, looking at this more deeply, um, trying to find out what type of funding would be available. Great, I, I didn't suppose the topic that you gave you with this summary, but I wanted to give you a quick list of things we think city council could consider to make this place even better. Property tax burden is a big issue, so county cash is a simple bond issue. 
transportation changes going to take the complex changes. Sidewalks, many older neighborhoods don't have sidewalks, so you can't get around. Uh, better access to the current trail, borrowing a power change. Crosswalk time, slower paced seniors trying to cross on 24th Street, so we'll have a flyover bridge. Some people in Yazine housing are seniors and want to get to their same shopping center. Opportunities for discounts and rebates, cost of services, internet connections, which is real franchise negotiation. Why not include the senior discount? Permit fees, moving trees, or adding AC, replacing water heaters for seniors might be discounted to help them do those things they added. Senior discounts for other senior services or events, encouraging merchants to give senior discounts. Parking fees in downtown might be discounted. And here's another one for you. We're about to talk about the parks bond issue. I've read through it. It's interesting. It's valuable. It's something whenever I talk to people, they say we love all of those things. But why not consider that maybe seniors don't have to pay for that if they're over 65, <laughs> live here for 20 years, and are 80% of the median income? If that were added, Senior votes, which you know are the most significant votes that you turn out to, even more inclined to say, Yes, I want to do it for my grandkids, but only if I can afford it. So keep that in mind. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to cut us off. This was an amazing presentation. We all appreciate it so much. And particularly since years eligible to be a member of your group. Yeah. <laughs> um, I particularly appreciate it. So um, we will not just leave this here. We will take this forward. We will incorporate it into our, our comprehensive planning process. I'm not sure how that is. So the scouts will be figuring that out. Okay, great. With that, thank you all so much for coming this evening. Thank you. Drive very, very carefully. <laughs> And shout out to Susan for serving on PFAC. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you. Okay. 622. All right. Thank you. So switching topics to park ballot measure. Uh, just want to remind you that we also have some time set aside at the business meeting. So if we don't get to everything, if you want to stop, we can take up whatever we need to get to a later tonight. Make uh, a big basket to lunch. Walks to kick us off. We have a couple things that we're hoping to get your um, thoughts on today, primarily uh, finishing up the package and then whether or not we want to be considering continuing to go in 2023 or not. We have lots of other information to share with you. Files will be made in July, not tonight. So, but we just we need to keep going if we're gonna we're gonna make that, that target. So, I'll go ahead and turn over to Lynn to start us off. Yes. Good evening, Madam Mayor and Deputy Mayor and City Council. I'll try to speak up because I know there's some sound challenges. Um, where we have about 25 slides for you, and those slides cover four different topics. Um, we're seeking Council's direction to finish assembling the elements. Uh, that could be on a potential ballot measure. After that, we're going to shift gears to discuss financing. We're going to have George and Michael cover some of those subjects. And after that, we'll talk about ballot measure timing, which will be Hillary. And then fin our final speaker will be Deanna uh, from Pacifica Law Group, whom we've met before, and she'll be talking about the ballot measure language. We do have some uh, questions along the way for your feedback. So the first one, we'll talk about the elements. Um, this slide shows the elements that council was discussing on June 6th. This package builds on the PFAC recommendation and uses community and council feedback. Um, with recommended elements package keeps the five original elements that were recommended with four changes and then added park safety and security. So that's, those are the things that are in the current recommended package. So two adjustments, uh, so I mentioned there were four adjustments in one addition, two adjustments, uh, we didn't hear any particular questions on or, or feedback about, that was the reduction in funding for the Green Loop Trail, as well as the change from seven sports courts to three sports courts. Uh, so we're including that in, in the final recommendation. And I think you filled back the slide. I, I would oh, head oh, to you went ahead. Okay. Yep. Yep. We'll be there. Just a sec. We did, however, hear some questions and feedback on two other changes, and those were pertaining to the lifeguard and water safety element and the park safety and security element. Okay. So this chart outlines components of the recommended package. As indicated in the last meeting and in the memo, this element package is at the same price point or cost, if you will, as the original PFAC recommendation. So we don't have a lot here in the way of finances <clears throat> since it's an apples to apples on cost. Uh, at the last meeting, council members discussed the importance of both lifeguards and park rangers. <clears throat> uh, you expressed the need to balance those high priorities to better balance them. Um, and therefore, two new adjustments have been made, and you can see them highlighted on the screen. Um, the enhanced park safety and security element was changed by reducing the two FTE park rangers down to one FTE, but then also increased some of the seasonal ranger hours. Um, and that allowed enough funding to 
uh, reinstate the, li the beach lifeguarding program, the expansion of the program in total. Then is the one at TE in addition to the current one at TE? Yes. Okay, so um, I do also want to note that there's two items at the bottom there. Uh, one is to use levy funding for some select park operations, as well as some uh, base level positions needed to implement the ballot, and also the NKCC repair replacement site assessment, which actually isn't the levy funding, but we're including it as part of the package. So the element investments you see on the screen are currently the elements with which we've been doing the financial modeling. Uh, another assumption made for the financial modeling is the way that we would pay for those elements, uh, which you can see on the screen. That's what the columns are for with the check marks. And All there. elements. There's no check mark there. There is a check mark. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All elements in uh, the park investment package, with the exception of construction of the Aquatics and Recreation <laughs> Center, would be paid for out of the levy funds as annual operating costs and pay-go capital. And that would actually include a portion of the Aquatics and Recreation Center design and permitting. We're actually gonna talk about that a great deal, or George is gonna talk about that a great deal shortly. Uh, but before that, we're gonna dive on into the elements. And uh, so our, our big question for you is, does this staff package meets the council's priority, uh, being focused and responsive to PFEC, stakeholders, and the community. John and then Toby. Yeah, I, there's a question and maybe a statement on the your revisions to the safety and security and lifeguarding. The, I, mean, I think we all know that uh, park rangers are probably more in demand during the summer months because that's when more people are using parks, there are more, more people uh, gathering together. Um, <clears throat> the 2,400 hours that you have there, maybe you could just talk a little bit about, I, I, I guess I don't, I'd like to understand what how that would actually be utilized. When I read that, I see, oh, that's probably like two or three part-time positions that would be hired to do that, and it would just be seasonal positions that probably be hiring each year to, to fill those slots is that kind of potentially uh, we, we could really do that anyway um, but there are restrictions on use of um, funding for a position once we get to 20 hours or more we're looking at benefits so uh, unless it's a seasonally restricted position so like with parks maintenance uh, we have seasonals that we hire uh, there are two seasons in the year you know the summer and the winter um, so folks could actually, no, actually, we tell them they can't do that. When, um, you can only work one season in a year. That can be full time. So if we use the seasonal hours to focus on summers, we can hire full time park rangers for up to um, six months. So another way to do that is the same way we do our recreation programs, and that's to hire some folks year round and just their hours would stay under 20 hours a week. So it's a part-time job for someone. Okay. Yeah, I, just, I guess my, my, where I'm going with it is I just wanna make sure that that is um, something that um, 
will be well used and will address the need, right? Because park rangers probably are specially trained. You don't want to just hire them every year as seasonal um, season, hire new seasonals every year because, you know, I think we get more from our money when folks are trained and know this, know our parks and know the community and stuff like that. So I just want to make sure that that, that would be addressed. Agreed. That's absolutely a challenge with seasonal positions. We have to retrain every year. And one thing that we can do with that is actually do both of those things that I mentioned. Because if we have some year-round folks, even though they're under 20 hours a week, they're year-round, uh, they're just a part-time employee, if we have those folks, we can actually maintain a better continuity of service. As well as the um, limited commission which is somewhat important for the ranger position. Well, I guess just for me personally, I, mean, I, I think this seems to be kind of where uh, staff has kind of taken what we heard from our comments last time and kind of arranged it a little bit different. Um, I'm open to it. I just, I guess I'm still just trying to understand whether or not that the safety and security piece, the 2400 hours really gets kind of what we were um, if it does, that's great. Yeah, it's a slightly different level of service for sure than year-round rangers. Okay, thank you. Toby. So there are some things on the list <clears throat> that I would like to consider removing. Um, we don't normally vote in study sessions. Um, what mechanism can we use um, to make those decisions about what to keep and what to remove um should we potentially later in the meeting vote on each item individually and see if each item gets four votes or we want to have individual motions for ones that people want to remove do you have, have thoughts on how to make those decisions i think that would probably be the way to do it this after this evening um, under business that the final decision doesn't get made until you decide what to put on the ballot in terms of money. So, for example, this all adds up to you need about $11 million a year, right? So, um, and the ordinance itself would go forward with layout that approximate amount of money. So, you'd want to know your final decisions so that you can set your final amount of money that you're going to put on the ballot. Right. Right. Um, so, we do need to know that by probably July 6th, July 5th, July 5th at the very latest, so that your final project can be done for the final vote. But I think having a sense tonight would be really helpful. So. Maybe we can take that up later. Okay. So I definitely don't have anything I want to add. Like your pickleball court? It's on there. <laughs> we could add more pickleball courts. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no. Well, so specifically, staff is asking us if we, if we have the elements they want, and we're saying, Let's table that for the later. Okay. I think it might be helpful if you just told us. Told us, right. Well, I can tell, tell you. Let me just tell you. So, uh, can we go back to the list? Yeah, go back one. So, the ones I would keep would be the aquatic center, the restrooms, and the courts, sport courts. Uh, the rest of it, I feel like, are things that we can fund out of our regular budget. That's my opinion. Um, and maybe the last one, 
but that already says funded through facilities funds. So we're not even proposing to have that in here. I think that the last one is important too. But I think the big ticket items are the aquatic center, the restrooms, and the sport courts. The rest I would not include in this package. And again, I'm doing this because if this is going to pass, I just don't think it's going to pass if people think that we've larded it up with a bunch of a bunch of stuff. And we need to be very focused as to what we're asking people to increase their property taxes. My humble opinion. And my humble yeah. response to that opinion yeah. is these elements both came out of the feedback process and the community survey process. So we are being responsive to community requests. Yeah, we're kind of at cross purposes though. There's community requests and then there's keeping the price tag down. Still. Folks, comments on the elements for this after, for this evening against the morning. We we will be asking at the business session uh, to confirm the elements for the purposes of uh, financial modeling. Right. Yeah. Right. And George, you'll probably be talking to us about what the differences. Right. What something like what Toby is suggesting kind of impact that would have. Yeah, we have the cost of each of these elements. That we're proposing, and so we can have a table that shows those things. Um, Great, like in the money for thousand dollars that's valuable. We wouldn't have it for this afternoon, this evening. <laughs> we can certainly have it. Are there any other changes you'd like to have us bring back? I'm gonna kick it to George then. Thank you. Okay, so how so this is the, the first phase of how we finance the elements, how we finance the, the whole levy package. Um, so staff has already done some financial modeling and we obviously had to use some key assumptions to get here. The first that I would mention is that on the expenditure side, we included all the elements which were on the slide two slides ago. Um, we also assumed the November 2023 election. Um, we are working with the 11, just over $11 million of revenue in 2024 that will be generated by the PFET priority um, package, which was in current AV 23.2 cents per thousand. And then on the capital side, uh, the, the current plan that we have has all of the capital elements, um, the funding for the capital elements completed by 2027. So everything would be kind of open and running in a five year period. And as Lynn said, the new program and operating costs that we have there at 25 million also account for baseline positions needed for parks to operate the increased investments. So obviously these are still being refined and will be refined more in the next few weeks, um, but we do have a good outline how the overall package will function for whatever size it is. Um, so with what all the assumptions I just discussed, we would um, create a new parks levy fund with the, um, with the new proceeds. That's something we've done with previous levies. We have operating funds where the, the um, restricted revenue flows into and it allows us to ensure that the revenue from the levy is spent only on levy purposes. 
We would also have revenue from the programs at the, at the aquatics facility, um, and that will give you a total five-year number of somewhere in the million of $67, uh, $67 million of total expenditures. And then on the expenditure side, we have PAYGO capital investments at 20 million, the new programs and operations, 25 million, and then existing parks operations. So these are primarily things that exist currently in the general fund in either parks administration or parks operations and maintenance, which could be funded via the levy and would be space in the general fund for the, for the um, debt payments for the facility. So this is a very kind of high level look at that previous slide had a table of the first five years. This is a high level look at um, what would happen across the first 20 years of the fund. And so you can see the blue bars there are the revenue that comes in across a five-year period, and then the yellow hatched um, bars are the expenditures. So in the first five years, expenditures and revenues are almost identical. That's primarily because the revenue is higher than the operating cost, but we have those pay-go capital costs, which make up the large bulk of the expenditures. In the second five years, and even the, and even the third, 2034 to 2038, the revenues are higher than the um, than, the, than the costs, and that's again because the operating costs are growing, but the revenue is still higher. And then you can see when you get to that 15 to 20 year horizon is when the costs start outstripping the revenue. This is pretty standard. It's similar to our general fund forecast. It's kind of how we see our property tax heavy funds operating. Um, I think the main thing I would say it speaks to here is when we get to our later conversation about uh, whether we do a temporary or a permanent levy lid lift, this shows that we're going to have those needs, especially in that 20 year beyond horizon, and we will have those cost pressures. Um, so again, this is this is our first go. We're still refining it. And you can see that bar at the bottom is the fund balance and it grows and then starts to come down. As you extend this out beyond 20 years, um, the fund balance does eventually go below zero. <clears throat> This slide is discussing how to finance the aquatics facility and financing the facility design and construction would require the issuance of general fund backed bonds. At, to do this, uh, select current park and recreation expenses would be moved from the general fund to the parks levy so the general fund could afford the um, debt service. I also wanted to highlight a couple statements that are from the city's debt management policy. And the first is that um, the issuance of bonds should be financed for a period not to exceed a conservative estimate of the assets useful life, but also that uh, the debt management policy states that unless specific counsel is, uh, is uh, approved, the limit shall be 30 years. And so we have done bond issuances at 20 years and we've done it at 30 years. For example, the, the Kirkland Justice Center bonds are 30 year bonds. But we locked in a really nice interest rate. We locked in a really well. Actually, those those were uh, Build America bonds, and so we had subsidy from the federal government for the interest, thirty three percent of the interest. And then when the rates became so low, we refinanced it, and it got even a lower rate. <laughs> but that would be an option on these bonds too. Even though rates are kind of high right now, you could say like in 10 years, we could refinance them to a lower rate as well. Okay. Yeah. 
Right. The, the debt management policy includes us doing a regular analytical review of the savings of refunding bonds and um, how we would do that. So to look a bit more at the general fund side of what we're proposing. So um, the, the table there shows you what we've imagined at the moment is two debt issuances. One that would be issued in 2024 for design of the facility. Um, and the second one in 2026 for construction of the, of the facility. So both of these at the moment are assumed to be very early in the year. And so we have the money very early. We have a full debt payment in that first year. The primary purpose of this table is to show the difference in the annual payments between a 20 year debt issuance and a 30 year debt issuance. Um, you can see there for the two bond measures combined or the bond issuances combined rather, the total payment is about 7.6 million for 20 years, about 6.29 million for 30 years. Of course, there is a flip side to this, and those bottom two bullet points explain it, which is that the total you pay on a 30-year bond is about $35 million higher than the total you would pay on a 20-year bond across the life of the bond. Um, one note here that I do want to make sure I mention is that um, the parks administration and parks maintenance and operating uh, funds that we had identified as moving to the levy would leave about $6 million in general fund, res in general fund resources in 2027. Um, so there is a gap there between the 30-year annual payment in 27 and the amount that is currently being proposed to move out of the general fund. There are a few things that we could do here. One is that there are parks expenses which would remain in the general fund. There is parks recreation. Uh, that sum or all of that could be moved. Um, that would then impact the, the fund balance of the levy fund, but there are additional parks expenses that could move. Um, the other thing is that, as the bullet point says there, the debt service payments are fixed and they don't rise year to year. And whereas the expenses in the general fund would be rising because it's mostly salaries and benefits and other costs. And so, although there is a difference in 2027, as the years go on, um, that difference kind of reverses. Um, and so, and I think there are three and I now noted down the third. So, um, but those are the two main ones, that the, the debt issuance is flat and that the, we are, there are other options that we could put into the, um, into the parks levy fund. There are parks expenses remaining in the general fund. Um, so in terms of the issuances themselves, um, we have a, a slide after this that has a table from the memo that shows the kind of the, the pros and cons. Um, but there are really three major options. Uh, the first is to issue all the bonds with 20-year timelines. The second is to issue a split, which would most likely be a 20-year issuance on the first bonds and a 30-year issuance on the construction bonds. And then the second <coughs> is to have both issuances at 30 years. So you can, because they would be separate bond issuances, um, you, you could issue both at 30 years. Question on that? Yes. Cool. Um, so that $189 million, is that in 2023 dollars, or is that inflation adjusted over time? That is in 2023 dollars. So that was just looking at the annual payments. So it's a higher number between the 20 and 30 year bonds, but the extra 10 years is paid for with cheaper dollars. That's absolutely true. And we can calculate that based on the discount rate. Okay. That's it. And council would make the decision on the length of the term at the time of the bond ordinance. <laughs> Is there any way to project forward as to what like percentage of the general fund that would be? I don't know if that's a meaningful thing, but I mean, right now we'll say, well, 
you know, $7.6 million is a lot right now, but it might be half that in 2043 dollars or whatever, right? I mean, yes, we could. You'd be getting very kind of very approximate numbers, but yeah, certainly we could stretch that out and see what percentage it is. And the current general fund is what, like $200 million across the two years or something. So um, it would, yeah, we, we could do that. I appreciate that. You mentioned that we make the decision on the length when the bonds are issued. To, to what extent can we account for those costs when we're looking at how much we might be going out to the ballot for? Like, can we, there's some level of savings that we can count on now if we were to go for 30 year financing? Or is that something you'd recommend not? I mean, that could be your intention to plan, and that's, it's, it able to afford to provide more services for developers producers. Yeah, I think you need to decide generally if you're trying for 30 or 20 to set the rate, because you can't get more money from the measure once you're done. But the point is you do, you will know before you issue the debt, whether you want to adjust downwards, say from 30 to 20 or something like that. But you're not going to get more money for that unless you set the rate higher, right? So we would want to know that you're thinking 30 years so that we can set the amount you're going to generate in the levy at about the right number. And so I think this is the point where we are have that council feedback on whether 20 or 30 years. And this will help us as we continue to refine the modeling. But then like Michael says, there's other touch points to come back and make the decision. And we did do 30 with the, with the Justice Center. Yes. The current modeling numbers that you're seeing uh, and George mentioned it assumed that um, the construction on the facility be 30 year bonds, but that the first issuance with design and permitting be 20 year bonds. So the numbers you're seeing is a split approach. Take it off. I think for what is a major investment, um, city, I think we need to look at not just current residents paying, but also future residents paying for what would be a big, big asset. And, uh, and it's a hundred million dollar investment. I think spreading it out over time, I'm comfortable with going with uh, 30 year debt for that second construction issuance. And as, as Toby had noted, it's it's cheaper money in the future. <coughs> I agree. Yeah, I agree as well. Okay, there it is. Up here in 30. All right. For, for both or a split approach? We need to sign that today. So, fair to say, whatever we'd recommend saves you the most money is what you want to do. And part of this is George has this really impressive and massive spreadsheet. Yeah. financial forecast over the next 50 years and we're we'll working on that to july 5th so this these decisions help oh, us figure right, out the best right. way to do it. <laughs> yeah pretty exciting stuff so that's the end of the debt service part of the conversation but we do have another e kind of um, consideration which is on the um the funding mechanism the actual levy itself so we have 
brought this before and previous PFEC discussions, as well as some previous conversation at the, at the last study session, um, PFEC expressed a preference for uh, 50 plus 1% um, levies, which would be a levy rather than something involving an excess bond. Um, and also when we had a vote with um, PFEC, 52% preferred a single year permanent levy lid lift, 31% preferred a long-term 20-year temporary levy lid lift. So we talked about this at the last study session about the, the benefits and disadvantages but we're hoping council could kind of affirm a preference that we could continue with the modeling on either a, a temporary or a, a permanent levy lid lift. And the pros and cons are there, but I'm happy to also answer any questions. Yeah, so I, I think I expressed my opinion on this at the last meeting. I, my feeling is that people are going to assess whether they can afford it this year and next, right? And that they're not going to think there's much difference in their family budgets between 20 years and 100 years. Um, I just don't people, I just don't think people have that far of a financial planning horizon in their personal budgets. So we made the last park levy a permanent levy. Uh, it passed very strongly. Um, so I just don't feel like that's an issue. I think the argument is very persuasive that um, you know, you do the capital up front and then the operating cost gets larger over time and that's the right approach to it. I agree. So do I. I just hate the word permanent. <laughs> <laughs> do we have to use the word permanent? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does not. It's actually the RCW that appears. Yeah. So, which will, when we get to the ballot title, we'll show that. So I think we have our agreement. Before I hand back to Hillary to go through the, um, the question of timing, we're going to re, we're going to re, um, we go over some of the assessed value conversation as well. So this is a slide from last time, and this plays into the, the timing. So as a reminder, um, the change in, changes in AV do not directly change what anyone will pay in property taxes, but they do impact the rate that gets charged. And so the reason we're discussing this now is because we've had these large changes in AV from 22 into 23, um, and again, projected from 23 to 24. I think last time we had a number for Sammamish only at 22%, and since then, um, some notices have started going out, and we know that at least part of Kirkland's residential um, values are gonna drop 19.8%. So that 20% number seems to be a good number to thrust the anchor on for now. So something we wanted to walk through, and this is a, a little detail, but one, something we wanted to walk through was how the actual property tax levy gets, gets made. So for that second column there, 2023, we start, we being the city, we start with the prior year levy, so that 14.69 million. We have a 1% increase to the levy. We can, we can levy up to 1% more than that. The county then gives us a new construction and a corrections levy. And the way they do that is they assess the value of new construction and they multiply it by the current or last year's levy. So in this case, they took the new construction AV and multiplied it by the 2022 levy. And that gives us a total allowable maximum levy of 41.7 million. Um, that we then 
by the end of November each year, we tell the county that we'd like to levy that $41.7 million. They then finalize the assessed valuations, which is those next two rows, and then they calculate the property tax just by dividing one by the other. And so the rate is point eight, our current rate is 86 cents per thousand of assessed valuation. And so that's just the city portion of someone's property taxes. So as we extend that into 2024, what happens is that we start again with the total levy. We go through a similar process. I will say we know nothing about new construction at this point. So all I did for this was take um, the new construction AV as a percentage of the total AV. And so that number will change a lot. But for illustrative purposes, just with a 20% drop in AV, which is what this shows between 23 and 24, our rate would increase from, point, from 86 cents to $1.10 per thousand of assessed value which is a 23.8 cent increase. And so just by us kind of doing our normal course of business, the rate would increase by 20, nearly 24 cents. So if we then add the parks levy rate on top of that, um, taking the $11.2 million number again, using the excess valuation and a 20% drop, you can see, and I think we showed a chart with this last time, uh, a 5.7 cent increase in what in the rate will be required to raise that $11.2 million. So the final table there shows you the cumulative difference between 23 and 24 with a 20% drop in AV. So we would go from a current rate of um, 86 cents to a rate of $1.39, so a 50 cent increase. Um, and so again, I, I know I've said this, and I know everyone knows this, but it doesn't change the amount that a homeowner will pay necessarily, but that number becomes important because that we have to put the maximum levy on the ballot, which is the final slide I have. So each 10% drop in AV plus the parks ballot measure would increase the required rate by around 15 to 20 cents per thousand. And the city, as I said, must include the total maximum levy rate in the ballot total. By November 30th each year, the city informs King County of the required total levy in dollars. The assessor then levies the rate for that dollar amount. So if there is a difference between the amount we levy, the maximum we levy, and the amount that um, the amount that the, the assessor calculates we can levy, um, that becomes bank capacity. So just to make sure I explain that um, clearly. We have been in contact with the assessor quite a lot in the last few days. Um, we've been talking to them about how this would work. We don't have to levy our maximum rate. So we have to put our maximum rate on the ballot, but we don't actually have to collect the maximum rate that we, that we are authorized by the ballot measure. So we can put, and we'll see this in the ballot title when it comes around, we can put a dollar amount for the levy and then we have to put our maximum rate, but we can tie ourselves to that dollar amount by ordinance. The one complication is that the difference between those two numbers and that final table shows you. So if we project a 20%, drop in AV and we set a maximum rate of $1.39 and AV actually only drops 10% and we, but our maximum rate would be, uh, or rather our, our rate would be 1.23. That difference becomes banked capacity. And so we, it will be council's decision. It will become banked capacity and it will become council's decision in future years about whether we would access that banked capacity. What the assessor has told us is that, that it will be, up to this council and future councils. Like they, they can't do anything to remove it from our roles. Um, something that I think Deanna Gregory maybe could talk about as well is that 
whether that bank capacity would also then be restricted to the uses listed in the um, in the uh, in the ballot measure. But I think the main thing is that if it was council's intention not to touch that bank's capacity, we could pass an ordinance to that effect. We could say we only want to levy the eleven point two million dollars, and we won't we won't we won't access that bank's capacity in future years. We don't collect it. It becomes kind of a difference between what we're collecting and what we, you know, our legal maximum. So we don't collect the amount. We collect, we tell them the dollar amount. So we would collect less than our maximum. So people would not be paying. It's on the record the city could collect it in the future. Okay. Unless we disavow that up front. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question. Um, so I was kind of trying to do the math in my head, and then I decided to just look at the MRSC website. It looks like the maximum levy rate for a city is $3.37.5. Right. So for us to bump up against that, property values would have to drop about 50%. 53% is what the math was that I did. So we're that's unlikely. It's conceivable it could happen sometime in the future if the bottom just dropped out of everything, but we're effectively at no risk of hitting the levy, the regular levy cap for a city at this point. Yeah. Thank you. I'll do a quick time check. So the next topic is timing 23-24, which may be a bit of discussion, so I didn't want to go ahead and jump into it, but I want to pause here. Do we need a whole... Half hour, great. So maybe we should just keep going for another few minutes. Yeah. Any last questions on this? So. Okay. Um, great. So now, now that we've talked about um, what we've talked about so far, and George has kind of outlined sort of the considerations of the assessed value forecasted drop, in, and that is definitely a tiny consideration. Um, we just wanted to talk about a couple other timing considerations. Um, we know that last meeting council requested that we bring back um, considerations for 2023 versus 2024 measures. And you saw lots of information in your memo. I'm going to highlight some of that and then also the PFEC input and um, have some time for feedback. So this is a very busy chart. It was in your memo, so hopefully you had a chance to review it. This is just outlining some of the different considerations um, of on the top there, you have the November 2023. Um, benefits and potential disadvantages for that, and then on the bottom for 2024. And just some of the um, things to mention as benefits for 2023 could be that um, there's momentum from the pros plan process and the PFEC process that have been happening, um, providing services and programs as soon as possible, waiting longer could increase in, in would result in increased costs. Um, evergreen health is not going to the ballot, so there wouldn't be competition of two ballot measures on this fall. They're not going to the ballot in 2023. Um, and we don't know what other uncertainties may arise in 2024. Um, and then November elections also tend to have somewhat more representative um, turnout with age, and you had some charts about that in your memo. Um, but then there are some, also some disadvantages, um, the unpredictability about the AV drops, um, the Houghton Park and Ride property sale is still pending, and there's not an exact timeline on that. Um, and community members also have experienced increases in their property taxes, um, and just might have that in the top of their mind. And for 2024, some of the considerations um, in the benefits are 
potential for better estimates for the AV that's needed after this kind of correction year. Um, but with that being said, a potential disadvantage is that we still would need to be uh, using the 2024, and we'd be in a similar situation of needing to use not exactly known numbers to predict the tax collection rate for the following year. Um, and then the, let's see, the, hopefully there will be more certainty about Houghton Park and Ride and more time for education on um, the ballot measure as well. And then the kind of disadvantages are the delay in services, capital cost increase, um, Evergreen Health may take their bond measure to the ballot. Um, it, we would anticipate they, if they were going to do that, it probably would be in August or November because bond measures have validation requirements and so they would be looking for bigger turnout, but we don't. they might go earlier in the year as well. Um, and potential other uncertainties. And then as was outlined in the memo, there's also some additional co um, cost of the, the election itself. So this year we already have budgeted to pay King County elections for our portion of election costs, but that's not budgeted for next year. And so depending on the election, it's anywhere from $125,000 to $200,000 for putting the ballot measure on the ballot. And then just a couple um, items, you know, specific to February and April, a potential disadvantage is the voter turnout isn't always as representative compared um, when looking at age. And then November is, of course, the presidential election year. So that means often greater turnout, likely more diverse turnout, and also means the ballot is very long. Um, so those are some of those considerations. And then I wanted to provide a, um, a brief update about the PPEC reconvening that we had um, just a week ago tonight, I guess that was. Um, and so we had 29 PPEC members attended last Tuesday. Um, and that included our PFEC chair, Councilmember Curtis. Um, so we had 28 PFEC members voting at this meeting. Um, and we gave them, you know, some of, we had just an hour and we gave them some of these quick highlights that we've been talking about with council. So including especially the updates about Evergreen Health, Houghton Park and Ride, and the forecasted drop in AB. And we asked them um, a few questions to discuss in small groups and then report out to the larger group. So that one of the first questions we asked was, what do you think about the potential change in the cents per thousand of assessed value for a measure and how do you think people might react? Um, and as you read in the memo, um, there was kind of a mix of um, responses, but really some of those included people might be wary because they don't know what their new AB is and there will be change. Um, people, will people trust the city to reduce if they overestimate the levy rate was a question raised. And just talking about the meaning of assessed value is hard to understand, and people are going to care more about how much it costs to them. And um, definitely confusing. And also that while we've all been talking about certain dollar number um, cent rates, other members of the community have not been talking about the change, and so they might not have a big sense of an incremental change from 23 to 29. Um, and then. The, you saw, we also asked them if there's anything that they thought um, council and PFEC should consider before deciding whether to go to 23 or not. And just kind of talking about similar things you've been th thinking about of the, the AB um, postcards going to go out, which is right now, and comparing the costs and then also looking at potentially other levies, similar levies. And then, um, so this slide here shows kind of what the PFEC input was for 23 or 24. And there were a lot more reasons shared in support of going in 2023. And um, I kind of already mentioned that first item that the incremental change of that um, cents from 23 to 29 cents isn't actually that much if someone wants 
item. Um, and really, uh, there's a sense of this is more of a question of whether a voter wants to go to the ballot and wants these items and wants to vote for them. And if they want to, they'll um, vote for the investment. And um, also kind of naming wanting to move forward, even knowing there is uncertainty because costs are likely to go up and there could be other issues with waiting. Um, and then some PFA members did share a sentiment that we would get another chance to go next year. So if a measure failed this year, the council could decide to go again in 2024. And then the one reason that was shared out loud at the meeting for not, or for going in 2024, someone shared that they always wanted to go in 2024. And so this slide here, um, you've seen a very similar version of the top table in your memo, and then the others are, um, there's added information that came after the memo was published. And so at the meeting we had, like I mentioned, we had 28 voting members, um, but three voted after the meeting. So here at the top, you'll see 93% of the people that were attending the meeting. Um, it said 92% in your packet, but we added the three that were there, just hadn't clicked the Zoom poll. Um, but 93% suggested, recommended that council go in 2023. And then before and after the meeting, staff contacted PFAC members who weren't able to be there to ask if they wanted to vote in, by proxy. And we did provide them with links to the council meeting from June 6th, as well as the council memo, and then a copy of the slideshow after we had our presentation to PFAC last week. And of those folks, you'll see in the middle chart there, there are seven people voting and six of those seven recommended waiting until 2024. And so it's hard for us to know exactly what information those seven folks had to review because we, we gave them all the information, but we don't know what they might have taken time to look at. Um, and they also didn't have the benefit of talking with their peers about this or hearing kind of George's more detailed explanation. Um, and at the bottom is a combination of those. Um, thank you for this. Um, I did have a question that. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything about the voting that was different between the two that there's that could account for some of the difference like in the meeting? Could you tell how other people were voting perhaps? So that's it was unanimous. Yeah. yeah. So we, yeah, we did, um, that's a good question. So we did a unanimous Zoom poll um, and then it was just a unanimous, well, it was send me by email. So I, I knew how people were voting, but that was, that was all the same. And is there anything you don't know anything about like what's crazy? Thinking about them that we would know that we're hopeful in about them. Awesome. I'm Mike St. Jean. I think I think it's a it's a little bit of a mix. I could take a look back and see if anything our sample size is pretty small. I like what you guys got for you. I was going to wear that too. Exactly. It's the podium mic
I really appreciate that. How do you do? There's a joke I made to them that they didn't realize this was a lifetime appointment. <laughs> 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 and I'm going to torture an analogy because I said last meeting that we had headwinds, and I really, the energy behind PFAC after they had their conversation with each other, and PFAC is not a good system. Uh, <laughs> Hi, I'm Sam Baker. Hi, Sam. Um, nice to break up, nice to meet break you. Up, and really strongly said yeah. we need to go <laughs> We have the momentum. We talk to our public. We've done all the research. Let's move forward. To me, that gave us a tailwind. It was saying we should do this. We should move forward. So I recommend we do 2024. Here. <laughs> 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 the process. Right? I mean, that's the whole point of leading feedback and the fact that it's just top support makes sense. I would really, we would all really love to know that we have the proper to do that on, right? It would be wonderful. We're in Baker's frustration. Well, I may be the only one, but I, I, based on our previous experiences with getting big things passed in presidential years, my inclination would be to go with 2024. Um, I think it's just a bigger risk. 